Good morning, church. It's good to be together with you this morning. Welcome to those who are with us today online as well. You know, there was a phrase that we sung a few minutes ago that stuck out to me in light of the events of the past week. And it was in reference to Jesus, capital H, being the hope of nations. He is the hope of nations. Amen? Amen. We should put our hope and our trust in him. Our memory verse for this month, January, comes from the first uh, book, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. We can say it together. It's in verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We begin this Sunday with our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and the theme that we are going to study this book through is the theme, Love Builds Up. And we anticipate that together we will have a little over 50 messages through this series. It'll take us at least a year and a half as we have breaks with guest speakers and, and other breaks that come up naturally throughout the year. And the big question that we want to explore together as we unpack and examine this book is this question. How do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? Paul wants the people of God in Corinth and the people of God throughout the world to know and to be wise concerning how we are to live. In Paul's world, As in our world, there were many questions related to the application of our faith. How do we apply the command of love? And the more the church grew, the closer the people became to one another, the clearer the problems within the church became. And as it turns out, as we recognize and realize in our churches today... Uh, We are not the only imperfect churches to ever exist. Even the earliest churches had struggles, some rather significant. And we come to find a common denominator between the early church and its struggles and the church today and our struggles. That common denominator? Relationships. How does the church relate to God? How do we relate to each other? How do we relate to the unbelieving world? These are all significant questions that Paul will address in his book of 1 Corinthians. Paul's concern here is for spiritual growth. Growth in our relationship with God and growth in our ability to love and relate to one another. There's a concern for orderly worship. Worship in a way that is honoring to God by remaining both culturally sensitive and hospitable towards those who may not believe but find themselves present at a worship service. You may have heard this question asked before. Is the church for believers or unbelievers? And before answering that question, we may need to ask for a bit of clarification. By definition, the word church, the church, us, not a building, is made up of believers, But by application, related to what the church is supposed to be about, clearly we are not to be so inwardly consumed and self-focused that we forget the great commission that we have been given. 
So Paul will both explore how the church is built up and strengthened while also examining how the church can remain sensitive and hospitable towards those who attend that God has not yet saved. Paul will cover a myriad of spiritual gifts. He'll speak to how they can be used in corporate gatherings to build one another up. He will give instruction regarding the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He will address matters related to sexual purity and relational purity. And he will cover the basic elements of the gospel and defend the veracity of the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. And we will come to find that how we function as the body of Christ matters to God. Both as it relates to how we relate to one another and how we relate to the world that God has planted us in as salt and light. As God has transformed our lives through Jesus Christ, the light that we have been given is used of God to build one another up and to show those who do not yet know the way to eternal life. And Paul will teach us in this letter how we might more effectively live these behaviors out in a culture that is largely living in unbelief. What an appropriate book for us to study, especially at this particular point in time in American history. Do you know that America is currently facing the fastest decline of Christianity in its history? According to Pew Research studies in 2019, 65% of American adults described themselves as Christians. That number is down from 77% just 10 years ago. Of that 65%, only 43% would consider themselves as Protestants, a number that's also down from 51% in 2009. This, while the number of self-described atheists living in our culture has doubled from 2% in 2009 to 4% in 2019. In 2019, 17, 17, 17% of Americans described their religious affiliation as nothing, up from 12% in 2009. Major denominations throughout our country have seen significant declines in both regular church attendance and in their denominational membership. Tom Rayner of the Lifeway Research Group has identified that somewhere between 6,000 to 10,000 church buildings will close their doors for the last time this year alone. If that number is accurate, friends, and that's a staggering number, if it is accurate, that means that somewhere between 100 and 200 church buildings were closed their doors for the last time every week this year in America. In light of these realities, the question that hangs over our study of this book is incredibly significant and relevant to the world we're living in today. And it was also incredibly significant and relevant to the church that existed in Corinth during Paul's ministry. 
We're going to spend the first several weeks of our study of this book in chapter 13. And so a fair question to ask is why would we begin our series in chapter 13? Biblical commentator Alan Redpath has said, quote, One could get a spiritual suntan from the warmth of this chapter, end quote. While German theologian Adolf Van Harnack is quoted as saying that, quote, this is the greatest, strongest, and deepest thing that Paul has ever written, end quote. Considering these things, there are four specific reasons we're beginning here. The first is that love is a central theme that resounds throughout the ministry of Paul. What Paul has done in his letters is he has so beautifully picked up the message of love, the new command as delivered by Jesus, and masterfully Paul delivers for us in the New Testament letter after letter after letter speaking to how this command might be applied both in the context of the church and in the context of individual believers' lives. Paul reminds Timothy in his first letter, That the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He asserts again in Romans chapter 13 and then Galatians chapter 5, 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he states to the people of God in Colossae. That there is one virtue that stands above them all. Colossians chapter 3 verse 14. And above all put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Throughout his entire letter to the people of God in Corinth. Paul is talking about how they should be loving God. Loving one another and loving those who are living in unbelief. Here and now in chapter 13, he's bringing clarity to the broader applications of love that he has been unpacking throughout his letter. And he's defining for us in this chapter what real love looks like. A second reason we begin here is that this chapter is so closely aligned with the theme under which we're studying the book. Love builds up. We are living today in a world... That is bent on tearing one another apart. Shredding each other's thoughts, words, and actions. Friends, there is a better way. The way of love. The way of love is a way that builds one another up. Not tearing one another down. And for those of us who are in Christ, we have far more in common than not. And when our focus is on Jesus and we're motivated and compelled by his example, our differences become opportunities for us to learn how to love one another. Rather than scrutinizing, criticizing, judging one another, we should be consumed with glorifying God through growing together in love, building one another up in Christ Jesus. Third, we will come to find That 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is perfectly suited for the situation we find ourselves in today. 
given the circumstances of the past week, looking back at what happened in our nation, I believe that it appears we could all use a good, hard, biblical look at the concept of love. Refreshing our minds from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Finally, friends, it's actually Paul himself in this chapter who does a great job of answering why we would start here. You see, if we were to study the whole letter of 1 Corinthians and we were to know it perfectly, but have not love, we are nothing. We have gained nothing. We begin here because if we are to understand and apply the book of 1 Corinthians to our lives, then it must be done according to the most excellent way. A way in which Paul describes in the text will follow for the next number of weeks. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 will begin at the very end of chapter 12 and will move into chapter 13. Let's pray. Father, we come together as a body of Christ to your word this week. This is a corporate activity. It's part of our corporate worship. And so we gather here in this building. We gather in our homes. We gather in the midst of other believers. And we are asking for you to guide and direct our hearts in the truth that you will reveal to us today. Lord, we know that your word is perfect and true. That is relevant to the very situation we find ourselves and our country finds ourselves in. In these days, and we pray that through our study of this book together, that you will help us to grow in our love for you and grow in our love for the people that you bring into our lives. We will give you the glory in Jesus name. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 31, and we'll read through chapter 13, verse three. This is Paul writing to the people of God in Corinth. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. We begin in chapter 12, verse 31, where Paul says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. He concludes this chapter by encouraging the people of God in Corinth to desire the gifts that he's described earlier in chapter 12. The higher gifts 
have been mentioned in this chapter. And though none of us will be given every one of the gifts, it is good for us to eagerly desire, though not envy, all of the gifts. You see, as we eagerly desire all of the gifts, knowing that none of us will receive all of them, we can come to see how God might use each gift to aid and tend to the growth of the church. We desire these gifts not for the building up of ourselves, but rather to see how each of these gifts works towards the building up of one another. These gifts, prophecy, tongues, the interpretation of tongues, miracles, these are gifts that were given in measure, and some only for a season according to the grace of God. But there is a gift or a way, as Paul describes, that is given without measure. This is the way of love. It is the more excellent way. And friends, this word excellent is important. Much has been written on the word excellence in our culture. We see the emphasis on excellence, especially in spaces that are related to the corporate world. Or the sports world. Businesses and sports programs all over the country. At least some of the most competitive ones. Are always in a consistent pursuit of excellence. Excellence in knowledge. Excellence in execution. Performance. Excellence in the application of skill. Excellence in attention to detail. Excellence in job performance. Many coaches across our country have strived for excellence only to see it slip from their grasp. Because, friends, in the world's definition of excellence, excellence is always out of reach. Because excellence is an impossible ideal that we have to work hard to attain to. And most often, Once excellence is achieved as defined by the culture, the bar is then moved. And one must begin and start all over again. In the world's view, the pursuit of excellence props a person or a program or a business or an organization or an industry. It props them up for the world to see and celebrate. Thus, we celebrate successful coaches and players and business men and women, successful cultures within industry and academia and music and sports programs. In the world's eyes, the perception is this. Success ultimately determines one's commitment to excellence. Thus, the achievement of excellence, according to the world, is conditional In that it requires some subjectively defined level of success or attainment. But from a biblical and Christian worldview, excellence is the objective command. And the ability to achieve excellence is motivated by the example of Jesus and is produced within the believer through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in John A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And we are told that we are to love because he first loved us. 
And when the believer pursues the more excellent way, she does not pursue it to prop herself up and make herself look good. Rather, she pursues it to glorify her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so from the biblical perspective, excellence is a way of life. It's the way of love. Love that is unconditional. Love that follows the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Watch how Paul unpacks this at the beginning of chapter 13. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clown, clanging, clowning, clanging symbol. The people of God in Corinth, what they were doing was that they were abusing the application of the gift of tongues. Paul is indirectly addressing that matter with this opening statement. It is a matter that he is going to more directly address in chapter 14. Now, what was tongues? Tongues was the gift of languages. It's important for us to understand that there were many languages present in the city of Corinth. Trade, industry, business had brought many different people from many different places to Corinth. And the gift of tongues allowed for a person to learn and to speak another language supernaturally. Now, how many of you in here have tried to learn another language? Yeah, now what if I were to ask how many of you found that a fun endeavor? There'd be a lot less hands. So we can understand that if somebody is able to learn a language very quickly, that there's some giftedness to that. Because languages do not come easily, especially at a conversational level. The problem was that people were coming into Corinthian churches, speaking languages that were not understandable to the broader population who had gathered. And there were no interpreters available to help. Now, somebody could have the greatest message on earth. But if they're speaking it in a language that you have not heard or don't understand, what does that mean to you? I'm going to try to give you a tangible example. And I'd ask that you bear with me with great grace. I'm going to speak a little Haitian Creole to you this morning. Bonjour, nuance, nom, bon, ak, bon, bonjour, qui remen ou, i, qui vle, pou, ou, sauve, petit, gassan, le, jesi, se, von, yon, sode, pou, conceve, pou, ou. Now, if I were to stand up here and preach to you in Haitian Creole, I would expect we'd probably have some disappointed folks. <laughs> Rightfully so. Now, Unless you've been trained in this language, there's probably no one in here that knows what I just said. It's a great message of love. Here's how it's translated. Our God is a good and kind God who loves you and desires for you to be saved. His son, Jesus, is mighty to save you. If the message of God's love was spoken to you in a way that you were unable to understand and no one present took the time to translate that message... What kind of love is that? It's no kind of love at all. Let me walk over here real quick. I wanted to bring some symbols that clang, but couldn't seem to find them anywhere. 
And I don't know, I don't think we use real drumsticks up here on Sunday. We have these things, so they don't even make a good noise. But, uh, I love you, 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 I love you. We think about that. That's what Paul says it's like. It's really hard to get our point across to anyone that we actually love them if that's how we sound. And so we come to find that we can say a lot of spiritually sounding words without being loving. And Paul does not end here. He actually continues with two more examples. Take a look at the next verse. Verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So in the first verse, Paul addresses the way that we speak. Here, he is addressing the way that we wield the power of knowledge and faith among one another. I can explain a little bit how this works on a Friday night in the course of a football game. If somebody on the field has information that would be helpful to their teammates, they better share it. Don't keep it to yourself. If you see that every time it's a pass play, the left tackle rocks back in his stance, you know it's going to be a pass, start telling everybody on the field. We need to know that. Share your experiences. Share your testimony. Share your information with each other. Friends, the same is true with discipleship, with mentoring. If we have knowledge that comes from God's word and experiences that might be helpful to share with others, testimonies of faith, of how God's love is alive and working in the world that he's placed us in, we need to share those things with each other in building one another up. Hebrews chapter 11 is filled from beginning to end with these examples of faith. And there are still great and powerful testimonies of faith alive and active in our world today. The, the whole Bible is filled with testimonies of faith. Because, friends, our testimonies are powerful examples of how God's love is alive and working now. In the world that he's placed us in. God uses our faith. To motivate faith. And to motivate love. In others. Sharing how God is working in our lives. Sharing our faith in what God is doing. In our lives. No matter how boring it may seem. Feel or appear to us. May be incredibly helpful. To somebody else. In the circumstances that they find themselves in. And what Paul is doing here is he's leading us towards this alarming conclusion. If it is possible to say a lot of spiritually sounding words without being loving, then it is also true that we can know much spiritual truth and even demonstrate our faith without love. And this is difficult to wrestle with and to chew on. But it's true and it's a reminder for the church. And so if verse 1 is speaking to the way that we speak. And if verse 2 is speaking to the accumulation of knowledge and faith that could be unloving. Verse 3 speaks to the reality that we can do a lot of things without love 
as well. Look at verse 3. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. For me, friends, as I was studying this week, perhaps this was the most disturbing reality that Paul uncovers in this portion of love. It's the reality that we can do a lot of activities, perhaps even activities that look spiritual without being loving. Giving everything away. Paul uses that as an example. What, what more could we do? But Paul's alluding to the reality that we could literally do this, give everything we have away without demonstrating love. It is possible for a person to sacrifice all of their possessions and material goods that they have and to do so without love. I mean, reflect with me just for a moment on the example of one of Jesus' disciples, Judas. Judas gave up a great deal to follow Jesus. He heeded the invitation. Obviously, he had some aptitude and some giftedness because Jesus allowed him to handle the finances for the disciples and his ministry. Judas traveled with Jesus and the disciples. He ate with them. He was witness to the miracles that they performed. He did many things that many people would have considered to be very, very spiritual. And not just Judas, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day as well. Jesus actually addresses this multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is delivering the sermon and he actually begins with the idea of giving to the needy. Look at what he says in verse 2 of chapter 6. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The symbol in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 is replaced by Jesus' use of the word trumpet or trumpeting here of the hypocrites in Matthew. But Jesus doesn't stop here in Matthew chapter 6. He actually continues in verse 5, he's talking about prayer. And when you pray, an activity that many of us would consider a very spiritual, spiritually minded practice. But when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And then he follows giving and prayer with an exhortation regarding fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. These exhortations taken together with Paul's words in verse 3 of chapter 13 lead us to the conclusion that we can participate in a lot of spiritual activities without being loving. 
friends, our attitudes and our motivations are important. Who and what is compelling, directing and motivating our behaviors? Is it Jesus? Is it his example of love? Or sometimes could there be other factors at play? I find it very interesting as you continue through the book of Matthew, you come to Matthew chapter 9 and Jesus again finds himself talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he says this to them. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. That passage is a passage that I've probably read or read over a thousand times before this week. But when I read it this week in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Jesus came out and hit me right between the eyes. As we read this, as I read this, I had to give pause to consider that what Jesus is saying he desires in this passage that I cannot directly apply to him. I cannot be merciful towards God. It's only God who can be merciful towards me. So what is Jesus saying here? If we've been transformed by the power of God through Christ and he is alive within us, keeping us, sustaining us, helping us to grow, then we should desire what he desires. And what he desires, what Jesus desires, is not that we spend all of our time trying to look and act spiritual towards him. He doesn't need our sacrifice. But rather, that we should be consumed with the demonstration of mercy Towards one another. That's what Jesus says he desires. And with this in mind, perhaps the way I view personal holiness begins to shift a bit. Perhaps I begin to see that my personal holiness grows in proportion to my commitment to and demonstrations of love and mercy towards others. Personal holiness then becomes less about me because Jesus has already declared me holy before God. But now personal holiness becomes about the way that I treat and love others. Less about the things I run from and more about the people I run towards. If I truly want to demonstrate mercy, perhaps I should pray For my enemies. And if I am truly desiring to grow in my love for my neighbors and the people that God has placed in my life, then perhaps I should regularly pray for them. If I truly want to demonstrate mercy, perhaps I read my Bible not to prove my own perspectives and points of views, but to better understand the points of views and perspectives from my hurting brothers and sisters in Christ. And if I desire to grow in my love for others, then perhaps I should read my Bible to see how God demonstrated his love towards me. And examine how Jesus demonstrated that same kind of love towards others. Why he was alive 
on this earth. Friends, the world will see the glory of God and the light of Jesus in and through us as we live speaking truth and demonstrating mercy towards one another, growing together in love. And I would share this today as we grow together in our love for one another. The spirit will work to grow us in our love for God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does this kind of life look like? How do we do it? How can we live in the way that God desires us for, to live? How does real love work? All of those questions will begin to unpack slowly, yet deliberately, over the next few weeks as we continue to work through this beautiful chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. As our team comes, let's pray. Father, indeed, we are thankful for the words of Paul in this letter. They are, in many ways, redirecting. They are, in many ways, affirming. They are, in many ways, challenging. They cause us to look inward, Father, to examine our own hearts, examine our own minds and motivations. And they cause us to look outward to the people that you have placed in our lives, that you desire for us to demonstrate mercy towards, so that we might honor you through the actions of our lives. Father, it's our heart's desire to be in your will. It's our heart's desire to love others in the same manner that Jesus demonstrated love while he was on earth. And so, Father, we pray today that these words would challenge, encourage and motivate us to continue in the faith as we leave this building today. And seek to practice the same kind of love that's been demonstrated to us. Father, we need you to help us do this. We cannot do this of our own strength. We fail every single time. Let your spirit do the work through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.